So if you've been here the last two weeks, you'll know that we're uh, doing a, a mini-series thinking about our church values. We're in actually the last week of this series, as Peter mentioned earlier. We do this three times a year, at the start of every term, January, kind of Easter, and, and, and now in September. And we do it because we want to be a church uh, that is shaped by our values, a church that is shaped by the set of things that we say we want this to define us, not just by our preferences, not just by, to, by responding to what's the, the latest thing out there. And this isn't a saying we've arrived. This is a saying, this is what we aspire to. So we have a list of these values, 11 of them. They're on our website. They're also on this card here. So if you haven't got one of these cards, please grab one on your way out. Stick it somewhere that you'll see it. Um, and we're looking at uh, the, the third kind of set of values. They're in three groups, loving God, loving one another, and loving our neighbours. So we're in the third set, uh, thinking about loving our neighbours. So two weeks ago, we looked at value number nine, which is showing God's compassionate care for the weak and broken. So Peter talked about how God cares for those who are weak and broken, and so we should too. So last week, we looked at value number 10, which is uh, creating attractive and safe environments for people to encounter Christ. So we were thinking about how do we make our meetings, our services, this service, as, as safe and as attractive and as welcoming as possible for people to encounter Jesus. We want people to not be put off by anything apart from the gospel of Jesus. So that's the last two weeks. This week, we're looking at the final of our 11 values, and it's this. Reaching beyond ourselves in local and global mission. Reaching beyond ourselves in local and global mission. So I wonder what your response is as I say those words. It might depend on how familiar you are with church world, with Christianity. And maybe you're a fairly new Christian, or you've not been around church for very long, and you're not really sure what we mean by the word mission. You're not really sure what that actually means, so you don't really know how to respond to this value. Well, what is our mission? So how do we reach beyond ourselves? It's kind of ambiguous. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while. You've been around churches for a while. And you've got a fairly clear idea in your head of what this means. What we mean by mission. And your response to that might be either positive or negative. You might be really excited about the idea of mission and reaching out to people. Or you might feel a mixture of fear and dread. Depending on probably your experiences and how it's been taught to you in the past. We've all got different probably ideas of what mission is. If we're to have any chance of living out this value as a church, of this value becoming part of our DNA, we've got to first of all understand what our mission is. That's really important. We need to know what we're talking about. But not just that, we need to be motivated for it right. Because you can know what the mission is and you can still not want to do it. And that's true in any area of life, actually. If you want to complete a mission, a complete a task, you need to first of all be clear on what that task is and secondly, be motivated to do it. I'll give you an example. If there's one thing that I'm terrible at doing, it's writing cards. Okay, I have a kind of mental block when it comes to writing any kind of card, a thank you card, a birthday card, a wedding card. I'm, I'm just, I just can't do it. We had a bit of a running joke in my family growing up. Uh, there was one family holiday we went on, I think it was in North Wales, and my parents thought it would be a good idea for us all to write postcards to our friends at home. So we all went out. I'm one of five, two brothers, two sisters, we all bought postcards for our friends. I had one postcard to write. My brothers and sisters did it in five, ten minutes. I was literally there all morning. I think it took me hours to write. I couldn't think of what to say. It became a bit of a running joke. Oh, that day on holiday when Andy took a whole morning to write his postcard. I'm just not good at it. Now, when you get married, you tend to sort of divide jobs out between you. Okay, some of them is not sure who does what. In our marriage, it was pretty clear straight away that Hannah would be the card writer. I don't know how she does it. She's got a kind of 
she just writes cards, almost without thinking. And she, we're having a conversation, and she's writing a card as we're talking. And I'm thinking, how do you do that? Uh, uh, anyway, so she writes the cards. I was very grateful for this, particularly when we just got married, because we had to write thank you cards for our wedding. I don't know how many, a couple of hundred cards, and she just got on with it. I was so grateful. Um, we, we agreed I'd do two or three cards, okay, just to sort of pull my weight a little bit. Uh, token contribution. One of them was for my parents. Now, we had a conversation before we got married about how good it would be to maybe write our parents letters when we got married to say thank you for you know, all you've done in our lives and to kind of mark this as a moment where we're separating and becoming our own new family. We thought that would be great. So I was thinking to myself, okay, that's what I need to do in this card. And knowing how I am about cards, it was a massive burden for me. It was a huge job. And inevitably, I put it off. So I thought, I must do it in the first month. Didn't happen. Okay, second month after we got married, didn't happen. I kept on putting it off, putting it off. I checked in with Han just to get my facts straight on this story uh, last night. I thought it was three or four months. She's pretty sure it was a year (laughs) before I wrote this card. Eventually, she said to me, Andy, is there anything holding you back from writing this card? Any reason you're not doing this? I said, well, it just feels like a big deal. I've got to write, share my heart and thank my parents for everything and mark the moment, you know. And she said, Andy, I want you to just thank them for the present. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I did it, and it took me about 10 or 15 minutes. I don't know, have you ever had that? A job that you put off for months and it takes you 10, 15 minutes? Tell me I'm not alone in doing that. So I misunderstood the task, and I wasn't particularly motivated to do it either. I thought it was a huge burden. It felt like a massive thing. And therefore, it didn't get done. All right? If we're going to understand, if we're going to complete our mission as a church, we need to understand what that mission is and we need to get the right motivation for doing it. If we don't, if this feels like a huge burden for us, we don't get it right, then there's a good chance it won't get done. And this value won't become part of our DNA. It won't end up characterizing us as a church. So, This afternoon, we're going to answer two questions. What is our mission? And what should be our motivation for that mission? Okay, the word mission, if you've been around churches for the last few decades, has become a kind of popular word, and everyone's got an idea of what the mission of the church should be. There's all kinds of books, articles, blogs, videos about talks about what the mission of the church is. So for some people, mission is everything. It's everything you could do as a Christian. It's caring for the environment, it's being involved in politics, it's, it's doing evangelism, it's uh, social justice, it's international development, it's everything you could do. For other people, it's quite a narrow thing, it's just evangelism, and we shouldn't be concerned about anything else. And I think the confusion about what the mission of the church is comes from a lack of clarity about what God's mission is in the world, what, what God's here to do. So I think what we need to do is to go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about God's mission, if we're going to understand what our mission is. So I'd like us to turn to a chapter in the Bible that I think is one of the clearest chapters talking about what God's mission is in the world and what his motivation for that mission is. And as we read that, we're going to find out hopefully what our mission is and what our motivation should be. So if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 3. If you've got one of these black church Bibles, it's on page 887, 887 in these black Bibles. And we're going to read and look together at John chapter 3. So this is basically a conversation that Jesus has with a guy called Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was um, what's called a Pharisee, uh, kind of uh, the religious leadership of his day. He was a a, a powerful man. He had had status amongst the Jewish people. This conversation happened near the start of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And in this conversation, Jesus really clarifies 
for Nicodemus and for us what his mission is, what God's mission is. Um, so hopefully this will be really helpful for us. So Jesus is, at the start of his ministry, he's making an impression. Okay? He's, he's going around, he's performing miracles, he's teaching with authority, he's driving out demons. He's making an impression and people are starting to be impressed by him, especially the religious leaders, one of whom is Nicodemus. Just have a look at the end of chapter 2 in your Bibles, from verse 23. It says this, Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Right? He's doing impressive things. People are impressed. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus doesn't buy it. He's, he's impressive, they're impressed, but he's not impressed with what they're saying about him. He knows that's not enough. Just thinking he's a good guy isn't enough. He knows there needs to be something deeper. So Nicodemus is one of those people who's been impressed by Jesus, who's saying, oh, yeah, he, he, he's, a, he's an impressive guy, and he comes to him, he seeks Jesus out. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is basically saying what everyone's thinking. He's saying, you're impressive? We're impressed. We think, well, no one could do these signs unless he's from God. He's kind of saying to Jesus, the appropriate, we we think you're someone that needs to be taken seriously. But Jesus Again, he doesn't buy it. He pushes back. Look, what, look at what he says in, cha- in verse 3 of chapter 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, for Nicodemus, that's going to be like a slap in the face. Because for Nicodemus, when it comes to God's stuff, he's at the front of the queue. He's been born into the right family. He's got the right training. He's in the right position, he's got power, he's got status. He's a, he's a moral guy, he keeps all the rules. Everyone looks to him for a lead. It says he's, he's the, the leader of the, a ruler of the Jews. And so for Jesus to come to him and say, actually, Nicodemus, that's not enough. Everything you are on the outside, all your position, all your training, all your morality, it's, it's not enough, you need something more. You need a change of your status, you need to be born again. For Nicodemus, that's like, what? What's going on? He, he doesn't get it. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Jesus is, uh, Nicodemus is scratching his head. He thinks, well, Jesus is talking about being born again. That must be natural birth, but you can't be put into your mother's womb a second time. That's clearly ridiculous. Well, what, what does he mean? He doesn't get it. So Jesus has to clarify. He says, verse 5, No, no truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is trying to be as clear as he can with Nicodemus. What I'm saying is, you need to be born again, and that new birth is a supernatural thing. Okay, We're all born into the flesh. We're all born a natural way. You need a second birth of the Spirit if you're going to see the kingdom of God. It's a supernatural thing. When he says, born of water and the Spirit, people disagree what this means. I think he's referring to 
a promise that God makes in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises the people of Israel that he's going to put a new heart in them. He says, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water, and I'm going to put my spirit within you. Water and spirit. And you might think, what? Ezekiel 36? But we don't know that, but Nicodemus would have known that. He knew his Bible like the back of his hand. He would have thought, water and spirit, he's talking about that promise. And that promise was that God would give his people a new heart. He would change their status within. He'd do something supernatural, something spiritual within them and change them. And that's what Jesus is talking about. New birth, you become a child of God. And if you're not, you can't see the kingdom. So we look around us, right, in the world and we see lots of different types of people and we're all on a spectrum, okay? We're all educated or not educated or somewhere in between. There's people who have great wealth, people who have no wealth at all and everywhere in between. Some people are very good people Some people are very bad people, and there's everywhere in between, and we put ourselves somewhere on the spectrum in all these different areas. Some people are very physically able and talented. Some people are disabled physically. There's all kinds of differences amongst us. But what Jesus is saying is behind what you see, behind the physical, there's another realm. And in that realm, there's only two types of people. There's not a spectrum. You're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. You're either in the natural body, or you've got a supernatural life in you. You're either dead spiritually, or you're alive spiritually. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. Try and imagine with me um, two boats. Um, They're sailing across an ocean. One side of the ocean is a city, and the city is in in ruins. It's in chaos. There's anarchy. There's civil wars about to break out. The city's in flames. Okay, it's, It's a bad place to be. Other side of the ocean is a city where a good king rules well and everything is as it should be. There's peace and there's harmony. And these two boats are going in opposite directions. One's going towards mess. One's going towards peace. All right? On those two boats, there's all kinds of different people. People with all kinds of different education, wealth, status, physical ability, all kinds of variation. But those variations don't make a difference to where they're going. If you're on the ship heading for ruin, that's where you're going. That's your destination. If you're on the ship heading for hope, that's where you're going. The only way to change your destination is not by improving yourself or trying to make yourself more educated or more knowledgeable or more powerful or more beautiful. The only way is to change boats, right? That's kind of what Jesus is saying. There's only two types of people. You're either going away from God, you're going to destruction, or you're going towards God. You're heading for the kingdom of God. But here's the, here's the really radical thing. Jesus says, everyone's born onto the boat that's heading for destruction. We're all born onto that boat. And the only way that we can change direction is by being born again, by transferring our boats, by having a new birth, a new birth into that boat that's going that way. The Bible uses different words to describe that. It talks about flesh and spirit. Or it talks about being in Adam or being in Christ. Whatever word you want to use, there's only two types of people. There's only two destinations. And to change, it needs a work of God. That's what Jesus says. He says to Nicodemus, it's like the wind. You can't see where the wind blows. It goes where it wants. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. It's like that with the Spirit of God. It's God's work to change people over, to change their life around. And this is, this is rocking Nicodemus' as well. He's saying, what? New spiritual life within? I thought, you know... I'm keeping the rules and I'm a good person. I'm a leader and people are respecting me and that's enough, isn't it? And Jesus says, no, it's not. 
So verse 9, Nicodemus says, well, how can these things be? So Jesus is, by this point, scratching his head. He, this guy's a ruler of the Israelites, and he's not getting it. So Jesus decides to bring in another image, another metaphor to try and clarify what's going on. And he says a bit more information this time, not just the fact that you need to change. He gives us a bit more detail about how that change happens. Okay? So he says, verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now again, for us, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, with the Bible, that might sound a bit, well, what's this about Moses and a serpent? But for Nicodemus, he knew his Bible at the back of his hand. He would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. He's referring to an incident that happened in the book of Numbers, in chapter 21. I'll give a bit of background. The nation of Israel were delivered from Egypt. They were slaves. They were freed from Egypt. And God promised them they could have their own land in the promised land called Canaan. In the middle of those two destinations, they had 40 years in the desert, wandering around, um, while God had to teach them some things before he could give them their land. In the middle of that wandering, this incident happened. And a plague of serpents uh, got into the camp. And these were poisonous serpents, and they were biting people, and they were killing people. It was a crisis. So Moses called out to God. He said to God, well, we need, we need help. Do something. Save us. And God said to Moses, here's what you've got, you got to do. Make a figure of a serpent that's made out of bronze and put it on a pole. And lift the pole up in the middle of the camp. And here's, here's what God said. I promise, if people look at that serpent, then they'll be healed and they'll live. And Moses told the people, and everyone that looked at that serpent, everyone that trusted in God's word of promise, that looked at the serpent on the pole, they lived. They survived the snake bites. And uh, Jesus is using that kind of incident from Israel's history to make a point about how we transfer ships, right? Here's what he says. Instead of being attacked by serpents and being in danger of our lives, we're under a plague, but it's the plague of sin. It's not just the nation of Israel, it's the whole world. That's what he's just said. We're all on that boat heading for destruction. We're all under this curse of sin. And instead of a serpent being lifted up on a pole, he says that's like the way that the Son of Man is lifted up. So Jesus becomes... The curse, the serpent being the image of the curse, he becomes that curse for us. And he's saying, when I'm lifted up on the cross, then when you look at me on the cross, when you look at Jesus on the cross and believe in him, you have life. So we're trusting God's promise, not of a serpent to be healed, but we're trusting God's promise that when we trust in his son, we'll have life. So Jesus is saying, this is, this is how you have new birth. This is how you transfer. It's the look of faith. It's seeing what God has done in sending his son, it's seeing Jesus on the cross, it's seeing him hanging there, and seeing him dying, his, his, his bleeding his own blood for us, and, and seeing that's, that's for me, and that's, that's what, is, that's, that's, he's doing that in my place. And as we look at Jesus, and as we trust in him, God says, you'll receive eternal life. So that's John 3. Having been through all of that, we can now come to answer our question. What was our question again? What is God's mission? What is God's mission? And now we have the answer. The answer is verse 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's God's mission. His mission is to send his son into the world so that he can be lifted up so that people can believe in him and have eternal life. That's God's mission. And if that's God's mission, then what's our mission? Well, fast forward to the end of John's gospel and John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says to his disciples after he's died and risen again, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus says the mission that God sent me on, that's the same mission that I'm sending you on. What's our mission? It's the same as God's mission. Our mission is to lift Jesus up so that people can look at him and believe on him and have eternal life. That's our mission. Now, for some of you, that's obvious, and you're thinking, it took you a long time to get there. Finally, he said it, okay? Actually, it's not that obvious, and that's why I want to take some time and look at the Bible and see what the Bible says about what the mission of God is and what our mission is, because it's not actually that obvious. And I want us to be really clear on this. See, what Jesus is saying here is actually really radical. He's saying, everyone without me is lost. Without me, you, you have no hope. You're heading on a ship that's heading to destruction. We're all born into a state that is naturally against God. We don't want him to be God in our lives. We don't want him to have his way with us. We want to do things our way. And Jesus says that way of living is cursed. It's under a curse. It's heading to death. But I've come. And I've come to take that curse. And I've come to take your place. And I've come so that if you trust me and believe in me, your life can be turned around. You can have new life, new birth, eternal life. That's a radical thing to say. Think about the implications. Without Jesus, without trusting in Jesus and having new birth, then we're heading for death. And that includes everyone in the world. It's kind of easier to believe that God's mission is to just go onto the ship and help people improve their lives. It's easier to believe there aren't two destinations. It's easier to believe that we're all in, you know, heading the same way and God's purpose is to try and help us get better educated and help us improve whatever is our problem in life and help us to get, be, be a more loving person and help the world be a, become a better place. That's kind of an easier thing to believe. It's certainly a more acceptable thing to believe to our culture. And the reality is, actually, when you become a Christian, when you have this new birth, life does improve. And God does step in and God does heal our brokenness and God does help us to be loving to each other and God does improve people's lives. And you see that all the time. Maybe you've experienced that coming into Trinity and you've experienced coming into this community and you found a community where people love each other and people love you and you've received and you've grown and it's, it helps you. And that's wonderful. And that's the way it should be. Okay, That's the way it should be. But when that's all we see, we can start to think that that's our mission. Our mission is to try and be nice and improve people's lives. Actually, that's the fruit of the mission. That's not the mission itself. That's what happens when people become Christians. They start to share and reflect God's love. That's the fruit of the mission. The mission is to lift Jesus up so that people can see him, trust in him, believe in him, and have eternal life. They were made for. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the weak and the broken who aren't Christians. He cares deeply, and we should care deeply too, and that's why we have value number nine, that we want to show God's compassionate care for the weak and broken in our society. That's really important. God's mission is never less than caring for people. But it's never just caring for people either. Actually, our heart is that we as a church would be reaching out, 
showing care for people in our society who need it. And as we do, we're showing them what God is like. That's why we do it. We want to share God's heart with people. And as people see what God is like, we want them to come to him and find out more. We want them to see see who Jesus is and what he's done, and we want them to trust Jesus and be saved. That's why we're doing all these things. Behind everything we do, ultimately, the mission is see Jesus and have life. That's what you were made for. So when we say reaching beyond ourselves in local and global mission, I hope that clarifies that's what we mean by mission. We mean sharing Jesus. We mean lifting Jesus up. We mean doing what we can so that people can see who Jesus is, see his beauty, and trust him. And that means individually, it can mean talking to people, sharing your faith, sharing who Jesus is and what he means to you, sharing what he's done in your life, speaking the name of Jesus into a conversation when it might feel unnatural, but you do it anyway. It it might mean praying, praying for opportunities to share Jesus with people, praying for opportunities to invite people, actually inviting people, whether it's to church, whether it's to one of our other events, the light party, one of our Christmas services, reaching beyond ourselves, going outside of our four walls to share Jesus with people. So on an individual level, it might be on a church level that we, it does mean on a church level, that we put on events and we run our services in such a way that we want people to be, to be seeing who Jesus is. We want him to be front and center. We want to be sharing the message of the gospel as we preach and making that hopefully accessible to people in a way that people can understand. On a world level, we've got that word global in our, uh, our, our statement. We want to be people who care about global mission. That means not only... Uh, caring about it but, but supporting it practically whether that's financially whether it's praying for people who are out there on the mission field sharing Jesus with others for some of us it might mean going ourselves to a place in the world where people don't have the opportunity to hear where there are very few churches but for all of us whether we go whether we stay whether we pray whether we give whether we speak whether we invite whatever it is a good question for us to ask is how could I be more intentional with my life? How could I be more intentional with the way I spend my time? How could I be more intentional with how I speak and the way I have conversations and what I try and tell people and who I am and how could I be more intentional to, to reach out to a world that needs to know Jesus? So that's, that's what our mission is. But we need to go further than that. Because if we're going to have any hope of actually living this out as a church... We need to not only understand what our mission is, we need to also have the right motivation for it. And I think that goes especially for those of us who, perhaps as I've been talking, this feeling of fear and dread has risen up in your heart and you're thinking, that's not me, Andy. I I can't have conversations about Jesus. It's just not me. It doesn't work. I'm I'm scared. What are people going to think? So for, for those of us who are like that especially, it's so important that we get our motivation right. I think it's really easy for Christians to get the, the mission right and to get the motivation wrong. And maybe you've uh, met a Christian like this. Maybe you've been on the receiving end. Maybe you were a Christian like this. They know that it's the right thing to share their faith and to talk about Jesus. But the reason they do it is because they want to justify themselves. And they think, this is going to make me a better Christian. I, and I know I should do it. Or it's just a duty and they think, well, I've been told to do this. I've been brought up to do my duty, so this is what I'm going to do. Or some kind of fear. The church is declining in this country. We need to recruit more converts. And whenever the motivation is, is wrong, it's almost always not a good story. The results can be disastrous. You get forced conversations. You get people feeling manipulated. 
you get often more harm done than good. So what is the right motivation? How should we be motivated for this mission? Well, if our mission is the same as God's, then our motivation should also be the same as God's. And what's God's motivation for his mission? Well, it's right there in verse 16. Have a look down. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Anyone spot it? What's God's motivation for his mission? Love. Love. That's why God sent his son. That's, that's God's motivation for sending his son to save the world. It's love. And his love is not a love like our love. Our love can blow hot and cold. Our love can change. Our love can be so conditional. But God's love is, the Bible uses the word steadfast to describe it. It's unchanging. One of my favorite quotes from last year, I was studying mission as part of my studies last year. A South African guy, he was talking about how um, mission is kind of God's movement of love towards people. He said, God is a fountain of sending love. Isn't that great? God is a fountain of sending love. He's not the first person to describe God as a fountain. Many people have. It's in the Bible. This idea that a fountain is bubbling up and overflowing. That's how God's love is different to ours. Our love comes and goes. God's love is constant. It's steadfast. It's always pouring forth. It's always outgoing. And love is not a new thing for God. It's not like he suddenly saw us in need and started to love us. God has always been loving. From all eternity, before he even made the world, God has been pouring forth love. He's always been a father and a son and a Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God loving each other pouring out love to each other, overflowing in love. That's why God created the world. Because he wanted to spread his goodness, spread his love with others. And that's why he sent his son. Because his love overflowed. His love poured out from him and he set his love on the world that had turned his back on him. He set his love on a broken world, on a lost world. On that mass of humanity who's on that ship heading for destruction. He set his love on us. And he reached beyond himself. He didn't stay in his little community. He didn't stay within his four walls. God reached beyond himself in mission. God sent his son. God sent Jesus to a place of brokenness, a place of indescribable pain. Crucifixion. He sent him there out of love. God reached beyond himself. And that's why we want to be a church that reaches beyond ourselves. Because of God. Because he's a God who overflows. We want to be people who overflow. And that's our vision for mission here at Trinity as leaders. Our vision is that we will be a people not who share Jesus out of a feeling of pressure or obligation, but because we want to, because there's an overflow, because we're experiencing something good. We're experiencing God's love in our own hearts and between us. And that just spills out. That we speak of Jesus because we want to. We almost can't help of it, help doing it, because he's being lifted up. And that's what we see our job as leaders and as preachers, to lift up Jesus so we can just look at him, so we can gaze at him in all his beauty, in all his outgoingness, in all his sacrificial love. We can just gaze at him and know that was for us and soak in that and delight in that and allow that to spill over in how we speak and how we reach out to the world around us. And you know the great thing about all this? The great thing is that it's not down to us. 
because it's God's mission, because God's a missionary God, it's not just our mission. He's involved. He's, just not, he's not just sending us from a distance uh, like a sort of needy God to try and kind of gain converts. and he, just, he doesn't just send us out to do his dirty work for us and wipe his hands. No, no, no. God is, God is full of life and love and that life and love overflows. God goes ahead of us. God reaches beyond himself and goes ahead of us into the world, into the brokenness. And then he calls to us, come and join in. Come and join me in my mission. And this makes all the difference. Uh, the, the company that I used to work for, when I joined the company about uh, 11 years ago, it was a fairly small company based in Bristol, uh, renewable energy consultancy, about 70, 80 people in the Bristol office, uh, maybe 150 people worldwide. And the company was led by a, a really charismatic guy, a dynamic uh, leader. He was a great guy. He was very inspiring. And uh, he was, didn't have any kind of airs and graces. He sat with us at lunch. He talked to us. And there was very much a sense that he was in the mission with us. We, he was working for the company for the same reason we were working for the company. We were all in it together. We didn't have anything like a sort of corporate vision and values. The closest that we got was that occasionally he would stand up and do a talk. And he'd give three kind of principles for working at the company, three aims. Number one, uh, enjoy coming to work. Number two, do something worthwhile. Number three, if you can, make some money. In that order. And that was the ethos. He, and he set the tone. And it was a great place to work. We all felt like we were pulling together to sort of achieve a goal. When I left the company, 10 years later, been through two mergers, and it was, a, it was owned by a Norwegian business, maybe 12,000, 13,000 people worldwide. worldwide. Very well-defined set of uh, a purpose, vision, value statement. Maybe some of you are familiar with this kind of thing. And everyone knew what they were because they were mentioned at every staff meeting, but no one really bought into them. And no one really felt like the management was on their side. The management were distant. And it became very clear, very quickly after the merger, that what they cared about was the bottom line. It was profit. And that changed the way we worked. When you know that the work you're putting in is for someone else to take profits of, it changes your motivation and it changes morale. So the, the, the difference between when I started that company and when I left was all the difference in the world. I was doing the same work. Actually, I, I stayed in the same team the whole time. But the way that I did the work and the way that my colleagues did the work changed. Motivation and morale made all the difference because of the tone set by the management. And here's the thing. God doesn't send us and sit back. God doesn't just care about the bottom line. God's not just interested in gaining converts for himself and sending us to do the work for him. God dives in. God sends his son. God sends his son to pay the price for our rescue. He's in. And God's the one who seeks and saves. It's his mission. It's not ours. I, I could give so many examples of this, that God is the, the true missionary. We just tag along to what he's doing. Some of you ladies will have heard the story at the, the book group uh, last week about the lady from North Korea who was a defector. She was, I'll, I'll tell the story for those that weren't there. I've got it from Hannah. Uh, this defector was, managed to leave the, the, the country. She was walking towards the border with a friend and heard a voice, an audible voice, saying this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Turned to her friend, did you say something? No. Did you hear anything? No. Walked on a bit. Heard the voice again saying the same thing. Are you sure he didn't say anything? No. She crosses the border, finds a church to find out more about this God who loved the world so much. She's a Christian. It's God's mission. It's not our mission. He's at work. 
I can give so many more examples closer to home. I, I love the story that Mike told last year when he went to the, the mission week at Bath Spa University. This often happens in student missions. The student union mess you around. The, the talk they'd planned at lunchtime, the, the venue was changed, and the time was changed at the last minute. So your heart sinks. We've advertised this, and people are going to come. It's the wrong place. Do the best they can. Set up the talk. A bit before the end, a couple of Chinese girls walk in, and they've come to the find their lecture, they're in the wrong room, they're 15 minutes early, and they stumble across the Christian Union. And they say, what's going on? The Christian Union say, we're here to give a talk about Jesus. One of the girls says, oh, my granddad had a Bible. Can I find out more? They give the girls Bibles. They're leaving the country in two weeks. They put them in contact with some people from the Christian Union, give them Bibles, they take them home with them. Who knows what God can do, but he's the one at work. We can make our plans. Ultimately, he's the missionary, and we just join in. I could, even closer to home, I could, I could look around this room and see people who've become Christians since the church started. And I can think, it's so obvious. It's not us that does the work. It's God that does the work. I can think of my own story. And I see how God has brought me from a place where I was walking away from him. He grabbed me by the neck and he pulled me back. And he's done that in so many people, those of you that I know, so many more that I don't know. It's God who's the true missionary. It's God who's at work. We just join in. And that means we don't need to be contrived. We don't need to manipulate people. We don't need to be frantic. We can just pray. We can pray, God, give me opportunities to share you. Give me opportunities to speak of you. Give me opportunities to join in with what you're doing. We pray and then we watch with a sensitivity to his spirit. We, we see what he's doing. Where are you at work, God? And then we join in and we share our story and we share Jesus and we invite the church and we do all those things, but we don't do it under pressure. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because God is a God who reaches beyond himself. And because he is, and because he's reached us, we want to reach beyond ourselves in mission.